God's good, isn't He? Well, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles. We're going to be all over the place this morning. But let's start in Matthew chapter 19. Your Bible's open to Matthew chapter 19. And it'll be just a few minutes before we look specifically at that text. Um, Matthew chapter Matthew chapter 19. It is amazing uh, how many passages in the Bible... You know, if you're if you're specifically looking for verses, you know, a verse or two, or passages that deal with the family, whether it's marriage or child rearing, uh, there's it's amazing how many Bible verses there are related to uh, related to the family, and that should not that should not surprise us. One of my goals this morning is. Um, is somewhat. Uh, I can remember when years ago we lived up. We lived in another area up here near the church, and and Diane was uh, the snake was in our yard, and um, Diane got a shotgun. And uh, those of you who don't know the story, we didn't. We used to live a quarter of a mile down the road. Now this is I was serving another church, and uh, so Jonathan was flipping out. We had a little. This is this is how long ago this was. It was a three wheeler. Not a four-wheeler, a three-wheeler. And uh, so Diane got out a shotgun, I guess it was Andy's shotgun, and he, she shot the deer. I mean, not shot the deer. <laughs> shot the snake. I'm sorry, because uh, Solomon killed a deer last weekend. But anyway, so, um, so Diane shot it, and when she shot the ground, obviously she did hit the snake, but a, a pebble, or maybe even a BB, flipped up, came off the ground, and hit Jonathan in the leg. And you would have thought he'd been shot, you know, point blank range. He writhed on the ground. But anyway, so I say all that to say this. I'm going to be, this morning we're going to be looking, God willing, we're going to be looking at a plethora, a plethora of uh, Scripture verses that talk about, that talk about marriage. And uh, just to, to help me, uh, I normally don't do this. I wrote a lot of my introduction out because there's some things I do want to read and cover to make sure that I, I cover some material uh, before we read some of these Bible verses. And I'm gonna—I know I'm gonna knock something off this. Uh, uh, it's interesting, uh, just for an example of what you don't think about what's in the Bible about marriage or family. Um, and we'll cover this, but the Proverbs, uh, one, of the, one of the repeated sayings in the book of Proverbs is the little phrase, my son. And 24 times, Proverbs, let's just say most of them are written by Solomon, wise, wise Solomon. And so Solomon says 24 times he's sharing wisdom with his son and he says, my son. And it's interesting that if you were to study that, you'll find that some of the first things that he deals with is with the temptation of loose women, sexual temptation. And so he starts out in the book of Proverbs when he starts talking to his son, he starts talking to him about sexual temptation and how it lures like wine and all that, but it bites, it's bitter. And so all throughout the Bible, there are tons and tons of verses about Raising children, about how to raise godly children, about marriage, the meaning of marriage. And we're going to try to look at 
several of those, <clears throat> and though we may not look at all of them this morning, obviously we can't look at all of them, I'm going to give you some references that you can go home and look up. And hopefully during the course of the next three months, as long it takes, we'll try to cover just about every one of these passages. And don't be, I do, this is a lot, it's not that much, but I usually don't do this, but I do want to read this. It says, And, and God formed from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This is Acts 17, 26. This is Paul's uh, reminding uh, believers where they came from, and really in all the nations. So let me read it again. It says, And he made from one man, that's extremely important today, uh, because of the woke movement and uh, some of the social justice stuff. How many races are there? One. And folks, in, within that race, there's all these people groups. The Bible uses most often the word ethnicities. But all these ethnicities, no matter who they are, they're all sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But there's only one race. It is a sin problem, but it's not a race problem. It's a it's a sin problem. And, if, and we know that because the Bible says so in the book of Genesis. See, we believe the Bible. And let me just chase a rabbit. One of the problems is these people are coming up. When I say these people, I don't know who they are. I care what the Bible says, not what they say. But they're coming up with some of these philosophies. But none of them are rooted in Bible. They're rooted in man's opinion and man's observations. I don't care who it is coming up with these opinions. That person is a sinner. And they have preconceived uh, ideas, right? They're not truthful. They're not 100% truthful like the Scriptures. So I would rather not trust some philosopher or, or some, some rich man who has a statement to make about social justice. I want to trust the Bible. So that's one reason I'm reading that in Acts 17. He made from one man... Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having, besides that, it says, having determined their allotted periods and their boundaries and their dwelling places. So we were talking this morning about the state of the country earlier before the service started. And, you know, God's sovereign. And as, as frustrating as it is, to be an American citizen and watch what goes on by the buffoonery of our government, um, we're not here by chance, right? We believe in divine plan. And I would say that part of this is we're experiencing the judgment of God. We've gotten exactly what we deserve. And uh, it's a mess. But God established the boundaries of America in eternity past. God's in control of all of that. And you ought to be grateful for the privilege that you have to live here. In Adam, let's go. in Adam we inherited a rebellious and polluted nature. Now I want you to think about this. It's not just that Adam was a bad example. Adam was and is a wicked sinner. And you and I have inherited that sin nature. And that sin nature, whether male or female messes up every conceivable relationship you have ever had or you will ever have. It's, and so I tell people this all the time. I mean, I've been married a good while. I'm 
61, fixed to be 62. I'm married. I have marriage problems because my wife is married to a sinner and I'm married to a sinner. So every marriage needs marriage counseling because, because we're sinners living together, right? And so uh, one of the books we read, I, I can't remember which books, uh, a couple of couples in here have recently been married, but one of my little counseling books says, the name of the book is When Sinners Say I Do. That's a great title. When Sinners Say I Do. And it's just a book reminding us, you know, you think it's going to be heaven on earth, but it is not heaven on earth when you first get married. It's not. The first two or three years, you lose your mind. You wonder what you've done. Because your selfishness has never been confronted like it is when you get married. Because no longer can you say it's going to be my way. Is No, you can't do that anymore. So, so in Adam, it's not that he's just a bad example. He's a sinner. And, and so that sin nature has... Your marriage is affected, your parenting is affected, your relationships are affected. So if we don't know the Scriptures, here's the problem. If we don't know what the Bible says about marriage or family, I'm telling you, you're producing wild fruit. What happens is we graft ourselves into the world, and we'll take a little bit of Bible, a little bit of worldly wisdom, and then we'll think we're going to raise godly children, but we're not. We're raising wild grapes because it's not biblical. So we have to be careful uh, to, to trust the truth of God's Word. Um, you know, Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. We were, the Bible says we were children of wrath and we were depraved. But it was at that time when we were unable that Jesus came and He chose us, you and me, and He raised us from, the, from spiritual death. Uh, that's... Remember we read that back in John. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, I lose none. He says it again in John 10. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand, and my Father is greater than me, and no one can snatch you out of His hand. But everybody that the Father calls to Christ comes to Christ, and Christ says, I lose none. That's what salvation is all about. So we're going to trust Christ and we're going to trust His Word. I love Romans 11. It says, 11, 16, If the root is holy, so are the branches. Jesus speaks to this in John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So there's this connection we want to have with Jesus. Through the gospel, for all who believe, God planned for the lost to be found and to serve Him on this earth. One of the terms the New Testament uses for this relationship is we have been adopted into God's family. We've received a spiritual inheritance. Now, manhood, manhood and womanhood were designed by God at creation. Genesis 1.27, so God created man. Now, think about what he says. There's so much truth here. Okay, we'll, One day we'll look at these verses of Verse by verse. But listen to what Genesis 1.27 says. So God created Adam. God created man. The word Adam. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Now I'm skipping part. Male and female, He created them. Them is the part of him. You can read Genesis 1.27, and, and this is why, I mean, just to be honest, 
that when a couple gets married, whose name do they take? Who's, who's? The man's. Because he called them Adam. See, that's straight out of the book of Genesis. So one of the things that we love is we love the book of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 because every conceivable doctrine we believe, and here we are talking about marriage and family, and we're quoting Genesis 1. That's why that it's an act of submission that the wife take the husband's name. Every married Christian couple has a calling to prepare one another for something greater than earthly marriage. Think about that. Um, you're, ultimately, your spouse is married to Christ. And so you're helping your spouse prepare to meet Christ. So earthly marriage is a great picture of our relationship with Christ. Christ and the church are a good picture, is a good picture of marriage. But our earthly relationship is it's far exceeded by something that's far beyond the experience that we have on this earth. It's preparing us for something greater. You know, I think about how difficult it was when you're early when you're early married in your early married years and in your you're jockeying for where you belong, you know, in your home and how you're gonna you're get, gonna get along. And and you know, here, here's an example. But the Bible calls all of us to be servants. Now, you know, submission and servanthood. We'll get into that in a minute. All of us are to be submissive to one another. But in marriage, there is a hierarchy. There there is there there's leadership and there's submission. But when somebody when when you're at home, and and then your spouse treats you like a servant. You want to say you're a servant, right? You know what I'm talking about. You want to say, oh, I've got a servant's heart, right? Oh, yeah, I've got a servant's heart. I'm carrying my wash basin and my towel. I'm a servant. But you let your spouse treat you like a servant. And tell me what happens to your pride, right? Now, you may not say anything, but it'll bow up in the back of you, and, and then you'll be slamming doors a little harder, walking a little heavier, because we're, we're sinners, uh, says, as followers of King Jesus, our Creator and our Savior, life is now framed around Him. It's, it's all about Christ. God became a man, incarnate God. Uh, and the Word became flesh, you know, John 1.14. And so we built, we built everything, our, our homes and our lives, and really in our church. I wrote down home, church, and life is built on Him. Uh, Peter uses a well, it's in it's translated in English. We're a peculiar people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. And that word peculiar, this is uh, I want to say it's First Peter two nine. It may be Second Peter two nine, but when you're talking about being a peculiar people, the idea of being a peculiar people is the idea of that word is is it's a it's a person or it's a people group that's known for being wrapped around something. So you and I are to be known as people that are wrapped around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it all makes us peculiar people, makes us special people. But that is particularly important when it comes to marriage. And 
and the witness that we're to show uh, through our obedience to Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 20 says, But these things have been written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Jesus said in John 17, the high priestly prayer, great passage, He says, Set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. So if you and I are going to have biblical marriages, it's going to be because we know what the Bible says and we make application. Today it's high time that we repent from settling with, for so much less than what the Bible says we should settle for. When was the Bible... Think, think about when the Bible and truth was a priority in your home. You have to admit that culture has slowly stripped us of our being clothed in the righteousness of Christ and has left us with a bunch of fig leaves that have no covering. They're just rotten and serve no purpose. Think about this. Ephesians 4 says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. There's two things about when we speak God's word. We, we speak words that build up, but the other thing that many of us haven't mastered is we know how to speak a word that fits the occasion. I'm not talking about philosophy from the world. I'm talking about knowing Scripture that fits the occasion. Like maybe when your child tells a lie. What would be a scripture that fits the occasion? And, and you can lecture them about not being a liar, but the fact is you're a liar. So what are you going to do about that, liar? Right. So you've got to take them to the scriptures and remind them that you understand you're a sinner, they're a sinner, and God has commanded that you as a parent correct them or they'll grow up to be nothing but a habitual liar. You got to be able to understand. I understand. I don't do what I should do, but even with my grandchildren, I still I know what it's like to be a child and be a sinner. I'm good at it, so I can't stand in judgment. I just we're all wicked. Um, think of sharing the grace of God's word at the right time. Just knowing God's word and be able to share words of life. Um. As servants and stewards of Jesus, one of the greatest weaknesses is, is our compromising our messages and words that we deliver and that we receive. Think about that. We, we're stewards and, and servants of His Word, and, but the messages that we give and we receive, they're compromised. They're not filled with God's truth. They're filled with opinions and vain philosophies. Now the Bible says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we have, we're supposed to pursue the mind of Christ. Or as Paul says to the Corinthians, take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to say it nor do it unless it's faithful to Christ. To be faithful in our communications means our speech and our conversations that consume our days are always 
holy, clear, right, and we say it in love. I even wrote a note here about woke, but I won't go into woke right now. We can't dismiss and or ignore God's divine plan for biblical leadership and discipleship in making marriages strong. It's what God does. We, we, we are to be leaders. We're to be disciples. We're going to make marriages strong. God clearly wills to display His glory in and through His created order. Glory that He's not going to give to another. Glory He wants out of your marriage. Nobody else deserves His glory from your marriage except Him. Marriage and family, it is still about truth versus lies, holiness versus wickedness, worship versus idolatry. Who, you know, most of us, um, one of my counseling books, premarital counseling books, talks about this. We, we want to say that when we get married, we, ha- we, we have these symbolic welcome mats we want to put out. Uh, but ultimately, we struggle with really the welcome mat we want to put out is welcome to the kingdom of me. That's what we struggle with, right? Uh, the kingdom that I want to rule, I want to rule my little kingdom. I want to be, I, I don't want to worship. I don't want to fall down and, and obey Christ. I want to rule my little kingdom. And sometimes it ends up being a little kingdom of one that nobody cares about but you. It says, without a Christ-exalting view of godly manhood and womanhood, we're going to end up reflecting the unbiblical patterns of this world. We believe the Bible clearly teaches the relationship between husband and wife portray the relationship between Christ and the church. Let me say that again. We believe the Bible clearly teaches the relationship between a husband and wife portrays the relationship between Christ and the church. By the way, where do I find that? Where is that? Ephesians what? Ephesians 5, right? We won't read it probably today, but that's where that verse says that. That every Christian marriage is really a picture of how much Jesus loves the church. So we're a witness. And it says the husband, and now in that relationship, now this is what it says. The husband is to model the loving, self-emptying leadership of Jesus, not domineering, not dictator, but he leads. And the wife is to model the glad submission offered freely by the church to the Lordship of Christ. So the man is not taking the place of Christ, but he's the head as a picture of Christ, and he, he leads his family by sacrifice. The wife is like the church and she submits to the leadership of her husband through glad submission. Now, your Bible's open to, uh, to Matthew chapter uh, 19 and I, I'm going to look at, at several passages but I just want to read. These are, these are really, some of them are really unconnected but they're just so neat. So I kind of want to... Um, test the waters and get you thinking about several of these. This is an encounter that Jesus had with the disciples about marriage. This is, uh, I'm in Matthew uh, 19. By the way, uh, 
chapter 18 is one of the greatest uh, lessons on forgiveness you'll ever want to read about when uh, you know about your brother sins against you at 18, 15, and you read on down through that, and you have this unforgiving servant that ends the chapter, and he's unwilling to forgive a servant, a co-servant, and Jesus scathes this unforgiving servant. And by the way, then he goes right into marriage. And I want you to know that an unforgiving heart in marriage is toxic. You know that. Many of you have been married much longer than me. Some of you are much older than me. Some of you are much younger than me. But an unforgiving spirit is toxic in a marriage. If you can't forgive and ask for forgiveness, you're in a world of hurt. Because you're, you're, you're a sinner. And you need to be forgiven. And you're married to a sinner that you're going to need to forgive. And so confession, one of the greatest parts of marriage is confession and restoration, right? It's, it's the little adage, you know, when you make up, right? Y- y'all can shake your head like this. They use another word sometimes for that. But there's reconciliation. Something happens when we reconcile. It's a biblical thing. And there's such joy and freedom now because we've been set free from that burden. Anyway, this is just a a little encounter that Jesus has about marriage. Uh, Says uh, now when Jesus, and again, if you people say, well, um, well, I won't get into that now. But but Jesus was, uh, you talking about socially and culturally speaking to women and about women in public that had never been done before. Jesus is the great liberator, okay? But now he never says a man's going to lead the church. He never called a, I mean, he never says a woman's going to lead the church and he never calls a woman disciple, an apostle. But yet he's the liberator, okay? So Jesus speaking about marriage and says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him And he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read what he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And folks, again, In creation, in creation, God does not make mistakes. God is clear all throughout the Bible. God makes men and God makes women. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what He makes, okay? That's how it works, okay? He made them male and female. Have you not read that when he created them, he, at the beginning, he made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave, sorry, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And by the way, that's repeated, again, that's part of the Genesis 1. That's repeated Four times in the Bible. Now, I'm going to stop here just for a second to give you something to think about. 
This leave and cleave passage is mentioned four times in the Bible. Okay? And what's important about that is, is one time, the first time obviously that it's used, it's before the fall, right? You with me? You got to be thinking about this. Because some people will argue that submission and, and all the issues of the New Testament because of the fall. No. God designed marriage to leave and cleave and the man to be the head. All that was true before the fall. You with me? So the first time this leave and cleave is before the fall. The next three times are after the fall. It appears one time in the Old Testament and it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Just to remind us that this is God's model to leave and to cleave. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife to stitch together. I mean, there's all these words you could... Uh, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Now, before I read the rest of this, obviously if the two have become one, and then that one breaks apart, that's what the idea of divorce is. And, and I'm preaching to the choir, and you know I, I'm not attacking divorce today, but I just want you to know that it's wrong. We all know, many have experienced it, it's, it's not easy. Uh, we wouldn't wish it on anybody. But in God's original design, it was marriage for a lifetime. Now, he, But they're wanting to know about divorce, okay? So God has, Christ has reminded them what the created order was. Marriage for a lifetime. That's God's ultimate will for a lifetime. The two become one flesh for life. And, there, and then he says, now look, here's what's great. Therefore, see this... This changes. I'm just, I'm not married to a spouse. I'm in covenant with God with a spouse. You see? Because it says, therefore, God has joined together what God has joined together. Let no one separate. So this covenant is really a covenant with the, with the Lord God. And then involved in this covenant is my spouse. But I have a covenant with God the Father. He's the one that owns this covenant. He's joined us together. Let no man separate. So, so when you enter marriage, the first thing we have to, when you're thinking, you, you want to say that we'll never utter the words, if you want to be honest, if you want biblical, divorce will never be a term we use in our marriage. They said to him, so good. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And because what was happening is, is uh, he allowed it. You know, guys were it's not right, but they were divorcing their their wives. And and again, I'm not going to get into all the historicity, but just know that that women were very vulnerable if they didn't have a husband, and uh, so. In order to protect them, they had to certify that she was divorced so she would have the privilege of remarrying and, and, and having another man to help meet her needs, so to speak. So, so he, he allowed them to write this certificate of divorce. But let's listen to what Jesus says. Uh, says, uh, 
so they don't know. I'm sorry. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and, and to send her away? Of course, you can read some weird stuff. E even in the first century, when Jesus was speaking here in the first century, they had the weird... They had... You could get a divorce for just about any... And this is from the Jewish world. Um, if they didn't cook right... I'm not kidding. I mean, it, if they cooked a bad meal... I, it's just bizarre some of the stuff they could come up with if they found somebody that looked better. I'm not kidding. So all these... So they had so to protect the women, they 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 give this certificate. So and he said to them, "You looking at your Bibles? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife." except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So, give them a writ of divorce. That way, they'll have a document. And they even get some assets when they go. They're not going to starve to death. They won't have to become a prostitute. We're going to take care of them. But I want you to know, God's, Jesus is saying, that for any other reason except immorality... If you marry another, you're committing adultery, okay? He's laying it on the line. And here's what's interesting about this. Just to let you, just, I read all that to read verse 10. Look how the disciples responded. Jesus was so radical about the holiness of marriage. You can tell that in that first century, even though there's devout Jews everywhere, their view of marriage had waned some. So the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. See their point? They're, they're saying if, if marriage is so crucial and marriage is so wonderful and marriage is so sacred, and the disciples say to Jesus, is it, is it really maybe, man, we shouldn't be getting married because it's such a holy... I love that. I love how the disciples responded uh, to, to the to the words of Christ. Now, take your Bibles and go with me to. Uh, hold on. Go with me to. Go to Ephesians. Go ahead and flip to Ephesians five. I don't have a watch on to, this morning again. I'm sorry. Somebody call out the time. Okay. What time? God. Okay. Um, go to Ephesians 5, but when you do that, um, I'm, I'm going to stay in Matthew 19 just for a second because I wrote some notes right here. I just want you to see, when Jesus speaks about women and, and a woman and protecting a, a wife in a marriage and having this certificate of divorce, it was so unusual because in public, Christ affirmed the identity of women. You know, he gave them personhood. He, get, he, he noted that you know, they have a responsibility. You know, he, he even said things to protect them, like uh, think how radical this was in the first century, knowing it was a male-driven world, Roman world and Jews. When he says, if a man, Matthew 5, if a man looks on a woman with lust, 
he has committed adultery in his heart. Why would... Well, I mean, number one, he confronts the sin of men, right? That's number one. But number two, it protects women. You know, that, that Christ had a high view of the purity of women. So, and, and, so, and then also right here, he reminds that women are participating in the covenant. You know, God joins them together. That was God's purpose. He gave them a calling. They were co-heirs. All these things were true for women. Well, anyway, I said uh, Ephesians 5. Go there real quick. And, and then we'll end, uh, hopefully, in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, that, that This is in the New Testament, right? Go to Ephesians 5. This is... One of the longer ones. I, I'm not going to explain a lot of this, but I do want to read a couple of verses. Now we'll come back and we'll just take these verses apart at some point. Verse Chapter 5, verse 22. And I'm going to go a little bit over. I know that surprises you, okay? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior, okay? Now, let me read it again. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husbands. Now, folks, if you just take these verses and don't season it with anything else, you can become a male chauvinist pig if you don't know what the word if you don't know what the word submit means, what the you, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. That kind of sets the tone. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, now that's Christ in the church. See, this tells me that a husband is preparing his wife for something greater than just an earthly marriage. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. There's a nearness to those words. Christ is near. I think about Revelation 1 when Christ is in the middle of the church. There, a husband is to be near his wife. That's how you nourish and cherish. The idea of body heat <clears throat> comes from those words. So in order to have body heat, you have to be near. You're with them. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting Genesis again, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. He's saying Genesis 1 and Genesis 2.24 is really talking about Christ in the church. And so he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's true in every marriage passage. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives need to know that they're loved. And in every marriage passage, wives need to respect their husband. That's true in every marriage passage that you find in the New Testament. I told you a little fib. I want you to go to 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter. We'll finish with this one. 1 Peter.
Look at 1 Peter uh, 3. First Peter three one. By the way, if you want to read something interesting, this and we'll get to this. It may not be next Sunday, but go read. Um, go read First Corinthians seven. We're adults. Go read First Corinthians seven because that's where it talks about that you're not Lord of your own body. It's talking about conjugal things. Just wonderful insight to, to that. It's not prudish. The Bible's not prudish about intimacy. And 1 Corinthians 7 deals with that. It's just a wonderful... Because it's mutual. It talks about this mutual relationship that people have. That no one in a relationship can dominate that part of the relationship. The, the, the intimacy. No, you know, nobody's big cheese. It's a mutual decision people make. God is so wise... In, in describing these, 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 these relationships, because he made it. Likewise, I'm, I'm in chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, it's not saying the woman doesn't ever say anything, <laughs> Right? She walks around with duct tape on her. But what it is saying is that she's not preachy. You with me? An, un, an unsaved husband, Peter's making a, an observation that her, her sharing the gospel is going to be about how she lives, not what she says. Okay, so, so her life of obedience to Christ, she doesn't have to preach. She doesn't have to lecture. Think about that. Think about what I'm saying because we're going to get into some Proverbs. Think about a nagging woman. You with me? All these things. She's not to preach and to nag. It's the first thing. And what you find a lot of times, you find, and I'm just saying this, but experience, husbands that are bitter towards the gospel, it's because they've been, they've been browbeat by a self-righteous spouse, wife, and who doesn't live what they say, Right? You can shake your head like that. It may not be you, but people are like that. They'll preach a good game and browbeat and tell their husband how sinful they are, and they're not living it themselves. Let's move on. It says, When they see your respectful and pure conduct, then he says, Do not let your adornment be external. By the way, the word adornment, cosmetics, right? Cosmeo. Cosmos is the word world, and so this is the... Anyway, adornment be external. Don't don't let it be about this. It doesn't say you can't braid your hair. But it's saying the most important thing a woman is not braiding your hair and wearing fine jewels. That's not the priority of a godly woman. A godly woman, her priority is being a godly woman. That's, That's the whole point here. But anyway, so when they... So it says, do not let your adornment be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Well, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? Didn't have to tell men that, right? Told women that, okay? But let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a... Listen, listen, we'll stop. We'll stop here. 
But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Uh, scholars talk about how much present tense there is in all these. It's just ongoing that you live it and God loves a gentle and quiet spirit. He loves to hear and see that. Um, for this is how the holy women, now we're going to use Sarah as an example, but we're plural. So Peter's just making a reference that holy women of old, Sarah's going to be an example, but there's more than one. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God or had faith used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So they adorned themselves with submission. And now he uses Sarah as an example. As Sarah. Now think about Sarah. When she had her child, her promised child, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac, you know, and Ishmael first and all that, and, and all these promises that were attached to her husband obeying God's call. Right? Her, her blessings were attached to Abraham's faithfulness. This is why the Bible calls them a helper. She helped Abraham obey. Now, she didn't do everything right, neither did Abraham. But look what happens. Because it's one flesh. So, it says, in, it says, um, like the women of old used to adorn themselves in submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, she wouldn't call him, you know, you're my Lord, you know, just she honored him. She respected him. You with me? New Testament uses that word respect. She, 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 listen, some of the most ugliest things that you hear is when you get around, and I'm not saying you've done this, but I've been around, where wives will get out from around their husbands and will just tear their husbands up behind their back to other women. Now folks, that's not biblical in many respects, right? That's so unbiblical to get away from your husband and get around a bunch of other women and just tear them down. That's wrong. And uh, godly women don't do that. Uh, does that make sense? Says so. She caught. She respect. Called him Lord. And you are her children. You, you're having this kind of faith. It's, it's if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening about headship and about submission and about the plan of God and God's will. Likewise, husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Well, that's a loaded word. In understanding way. Do you know why? Because we don't understand. So we better understand. Men are buffoons. We have to teach ourselves to understand. That's why we abandon. A guy will work three jobs and play golf five times a week to keep away from his wife. So he don't want to deal with her. That's what men do. 
They abdicate. They bail out. They'll do anything than having to deal with the, the, the emotional, spiritual stuff. Husbands, love with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I think they're still having trouble with that, with, the, with that transvestite or whatever that sex. The athlete that's winning all the awards now that he's a she, right? Because there's a... Is there not a difference? Male and female, okay. Since they are... No, see, it's showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs... Because a lot of times men have a disdain for weakness. They try to take advantage of it, but that doesn't happen in marriage. It says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And then he says, so that your prayers may not be, be hindered. Folks, they're just, they go on and on and on. Let me give you this one word. Thinking about the word submit, okay? I, in the Bible, submit, like when a wife submits to her husband, the same word is used for citizens submitting to the government, for children submitting to their parents, wives to their husbands, creation submitted to the words of Christ, Christ submitted to His Father, and servants submit to their masters. So it's obvious that there is a pattern of leadership and, and we want to honor that in marriage. Folks, there's so many more things we could talk about. Let's stand together. John's going to come dismiss us with a word of prayer. We'll pick back up on this next next Sunday morning. God bless you for being here. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to come into this house that you've provided for us to gather together with a fellow Christians, Father. And as your word tells us, iron sharpens iron. And Father, we're thankful for your words that were spoken through your servant and our pastor, Reverend Bryce Cox, and explain to us that we can understand them and hide them in our heart and draw back on them again when we need them in times of need. And Father, our, our hearts break for those that are not able to be with us today because of the evil virus that's plagued our country, Father. Not only our members, but all across this country, Father. Uh, but we know that you're still in charge, and we just lift them up to you, Father. I know a lot of world tensions going on with other countries and so forth. And Father, we were founded as a Christian country, but Father, we've drifted away, and we pray this is just a wake-up call that you'll intervene and draw us back together as a Christian country as we should be. And uh, Father, we know that uh, you have a plan, and we pray that you'll explain things to us and help us apply. May we be energized to go out and reach others before it's too late and draw as many into your house, Father, throughout our lifetime. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.